This is the seventh edition of the Free City Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today on the broadcast, on the show, we're going to feature a bunch of different voices. Um, So thanks for tuning in. Um, Of course, Free City Radio broadcasts on CKUT Radio every Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 11.30. But this podcast version is a bit longer. I also include some more music tracks that I love. Um, and actually launched in the context of the closures around the pandemic, COVID-19, here in Montreal. I've been producing the show here at home, just off Jean Talon Street in Montreal. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe. Thanks for being with us. So to begin the program today, I wanted to feature a bit of drumming, a bit of percussion. This is a piece by my friend Carl Pricot, uh, who has been a key member on the percussion front of the Community Vibe Collective for many, many years. And um, he shared this with me, and I just wanted to share it with you. Carl uh, has been working on a project uh, in Montreal called uh, Support Local Artists, Appui des Artistes Locales and um, also uh, music heals but it's written in creole so music with a k uh carl's awesome uh father um community artist so here he is playing djembe That was a drum piece by Carl Pricot. Thank you, Carl, for that. Uh, Carl is a central percussionist in the Community Vibe Collective here in Montreal. So I wanted to share that sound with you. Um, I wanted to go now to a short discussion that I had um, with a friend of mine who lives in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon called Borja Barajni. And uh, so this is one of the main refugee camps in Lebanon for Palestinian refugees. Uh, Until today, Palestinians are one of the largest refugee populations in the world, according to the United Nations. The the refugee camps in Lebanon were constructed um, by Palestinians with some UN support after time. Um, both after the initial displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians through the creation of the Israeli state in 1948, and also through the displacement of Palestinians from the Palestinian West Bank 
during the war in 1967. Uh, so these are moments of mass forced displacement. And this led to people fleeing to Lebanon, Palestinians who constructed camps, homes in Lebanon. Uh, and one of those is Borja Barashni. Um, Although the camp has evolved from, you know, makeshift shelters to actual buildings I've visited many times, uh, it's still a very uh, densely populated uh, region of the city, Beirut. It's in the south suburbs of Beirut, not, not far from the Beirut International Airport, actually. So in the context of a pandemic, it's been really important and essential that uh, the camp has remained clean. So there's a community effort taking place to try to keep the alleyways clean and to practice social distancing. And in the context of a, a refugee camp, which is only a few square kilometers large, um, and this is a camp of somewhere between 60 to 80,000 people, uh, you can imagine social distancing is very difficult. Um, so I spoke with a friend of mine who I've known for a long time named Khaloud Hussein, uh, who actually works for the Red Crescent Society um, in different capacities. That's the Red Cross in the Islamic world. Um, and she talked about what it's been like in Borsha Barajni in the context of uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Um, I spoke with Khaloud, who actually was at a hospital in Saida, which is in the south of Lebanon. It's a city um, about an hour south from Beirut. Um, so we, we spoke the other day over Messenger and I recorded our conversation. I just want to share that with you here on Free City Radio. Good morning. Hi, Hi Khaloud. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Are, how's it going? Are you are you still working or are you have it to stay home? No, we are staying home most of the time. Okay. I'm working from home now, and most of the people are working uh, from home. But uh, uh, two days ago, the Lebanese government allowed uh, to some shops to be open, but not all the shops. It depends. But mainly, most of the people are. Uh, working from home and it's very strict in Lebanon like also going out it's not easy uh, we need like uh, if your car's uh, number plate is odd you can go on Monday Wednesday Friday if, we, if it's even you have to Tuesday Thursday Friday so they are organizing and are uh, very strict with the rules to contain the coronavirus yeah, but it's not bad. I can hear the uh, birds in Borja Barashni. No, actually, it's not birds. Actually, no, we have no birds. I'm inside the city because my husband uh, admit the hospital. So I'm in the hospital. That's why you can hear birds. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, oh, is your husband okay? Yeah, he's fine now. He's better now. But we're waiting the doctor to come and see him. Oh. But he's better. Oh, did did he have uh, COVID? No, 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 no. He has bleeding from his oh. stomach. We don't know the reason yet. Oh, okay, okay. We haven't detected any COVID cases in all the camps. 
Last week they talked about five cases in Wavell Camp, but eventually it wasn't true. What they had is not COVID because they tested them in different uh, hospitals and each hospital give, uh, gives different uh, results. So mm. uh, we are not sure about it. Alhamdulillah, till now none of the camps we detect any COVID cases. I guess, you know, for you seeing the news from around the world, um, you know, in Borja Barajni, there's a lot of um, challenges with health uh, all the time. It's not only right now. So I guess yeah. for you, yeah. like seeing all this news from around the world, what does that make you think about the fact that, you know, in, in your community, in Borja Barajni and Beirut, um, you're always facing health challenges. Yeah. It's not just right now. Yeah, for us, we, uh, for me personally, I feel so sad for all the infecting people in all the world. And for us, we feel like it's going to be a disaster if anyone gets infected because, you know, as a Palestinian, we have no places. Even UNRWA till now, they are not ready to cover anything yet. So, and the Lebanese government or the health ministry, they contact the UNRWA about in case something happened to or any Palestinian gets infected. But uh, no, so we feel worried if one got infected. But at the same time, we have this belief that, you know, what is meant to happen, it will happen. So sometimes it doesn't make any difference, any difference, COVID or any other disease. It's for us sometimes the same because there's no one to take care of us. And so we leave it to God with our beliefs. And what will happen, it will happen. But in Borja Barashni, there's a lot of effort that exists. Uh, even though the resources are limited, there's a lot of health efforts, which you're involved in. Um, could you talk, yeah, about, yeah. talk about the yeah, challenges yeah. of sustaining health care within the Palestinian refugee camp? Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of ch uh, challenges, even in the camps, uh, uh, like uh, all the PRCS uh, branches and on the camps. That's the Red Crescent. Yeah, yeah, Palestinian Red Crescent, yeah. Society, yeah, they are preparing, even now I'm in Hamshari Hospital in Saida. Uh, now they don't admit any cases, like even regular cases, unless it's very urgent. They take a lot of precautions, all the NGOs and all the camps, are taking precautions and they are uh, vaccinate the camps and even we have an extra job for the garbage collector. They come in the morning, in the afternoon, uh, the alleys are clean and most of the NGOs, they give a lot of lectures, awareness lectures about COVID, about how to sanitize, how to be clean, how to avoid it, how to protect yourself. So in general, all the camps are participating with the precaution because, you know, with the, our, with the preventable, because it's the only way we can avoid it. And people now, as we said before, like the Lebanese government, we have a curfew time from 7 o'clock till 5 o'clock in the morning, so not allowed for people to go out every day. Uh, so these uh, strict rules help us too. And also inside the camp, we are doing our best to aware the people about it, which is working well, and these NGOs are doing a good job. 
Can you, just for people who are listening who don't know uh, where is Boja Barashni and your community, can you just say quickly where, where it is and maybe just describe um, something, something beautiful and also something difficult uh, of Borja Barashni? Okay. Borja Barashni camp is in Beirut, suburb, and it's very close to the airport. It's, uh, it's a small camp. But the population about uh, 42 now, because we have about 22,000 uh, Syrian displaced people. And uh, the good thing in Burj Al Baraj camp is the people are really united and they take care of the, each other, even with very small capacities, with a small uh, income. Or uh, we have a lot of difficulties, but at the same time, uh, we have. Uh, nice life so as a social life even now we are deprived because of COVID-19 we can't have a social life normal social life and uh, we are hoping things will be better for the Palestinian refugee in the camps inshallah inshallah that was a uh, discussion I had with Hulud Hussein, uh, who is a Palestinian mother, community activist, and she also works with the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. That's the Red Cross uh, in the Islamic world. She was talking to us from Saida, Lebanon, uh, and lives in the Palestinian refugee camp of Borja Barashni. So, in the context of pandemic, this podcast has been trying to highlight different voices. Um, one voice that I felt it was important to highlight was the voice of the Immigrant Workers Centre here in Montreal. Um, and I spoke with Mustafa Hanawi. Uh, I did speak with him in a previous podcast, which was more about the economics of disaster. But this is a short discussion we had, and it particularly looks at... Uh, the campaign that the Immigrant Workers Center has been uh, waging, has been working on, around the rights of um, the workers of Dollarama. So that's the Dollarama um, chain. They've been campaigning around the working conditions and the working, uh, excuse me, and the, the safety, in fact, of workers at this time, mainly immigrant workers, mainly workers from Africa. And they actually won some concessions from Dollarama in regards to uh, safety protocols. There's still a long way to go. But I spoke with Mustafa about this campaign for the rights of workers at Dollarama and important, importantly, the recent victory that they had. So here's Mustafa. I'm in Montreal with Mustafa Hanawi from the Immigrant Workers Center. And recently they've been uh, working in the context of the pandemic and the closures of COVID-19 in Montreal on the rights of warehouse workers in Montreal, particularly around a dollar shop that exists in Quebec, which is called Dollarama. And there is a campaign going on around this. So, hey, Moose. Hey, Mustafa, could you talk about the issues that you were bringing up and maybe the conditions you were addressing through the Immigrant Workers Centre? So uh, the issues that, uh, that these workers face, just to give a little context, so Dollarama is uh, a multinational corporation. Uh, it operates now in Latin America. It has part ownership by Bain Capital, which is uh, Mitt Romney's hedge fund. Um, and it's a 
corporation that employs around 20,000 workers. And most of its operations in terms of its warehousing and distribution is similar to that of, uh, let's say, Amazon or of Walmart, right? So this very hyper neoliberal uh, version of just-in-time just distribution of goods, right? So uh, that means that a lot of these workers are temp workers uh, in the distribution center. Almost 90% of them are. Uh, it is uh, low wages. Uh, precarious so meaning that uh, to be able to fulfill that most of these workers are racialized they're Haitian uh, West African and uh, you know living and working uh, under the most uh, harsh conditions without uh, basic health and safety equipment uh, they're non-unionized they don't have uh, access to their basic rights uh, because they're temp workers, a lot of the time uh, they live in fear because they don't know if they're going to have the job the next day. So those were the conditions sort of prior to the pandemic. And what happened during the pandemic as what we saw in, in Amazon mm -hmm. uh, and other large workplaces, they became sites of outbreaks uh, as Dollarama in Quebec was declared uh, an essential service. Uh, because it does sell uh, food items and as a result when you have a thousand people in a badly organized workplace uh, an employer that refuses to respect people's health and safety rights prior to the pandemic only becomes exasperated during the pandemic and um, and what we were fighting around and what workers were organizing around was essentially the right uh, to, to not get sick, essentially the right to be able to live. And um, unfortunately, a lot of these workers knew that this was going to happen and that workers were going to test positive. These are large workplaces where the turnover is like 20 people a day, new workers, because the conditions are so bad. Um, and uh, they weren't given proper health and safety equipment. Uh, they were not given masks or gloves. Uh, the equipment wasn't sanitized. Uh, Dollarama kept a policy of secrecy in terms of people who have tested positive. So workers on the site didn't even know if other workers had had it. Uh, they just know that workers were calling in sick, were not showing up. And many felt there was a racialized aspect to it, that many of the white Quebecois workers were staying at home while many of the immigrant workers uh, uh, who are mostly black were still going into work. And so the Immigrant Workers Center, we've been working with these workers for a number of years, but uh, the urgency came up during the pandemic because we knew there was going to be an outbreak. And we saw what happened in Amazon uh, where a number of warehouses uh, and fulfillment centers, people had tested positive. Uh, we were beginning to see the same thing, right? And and so uh, the American Workers Center, we worked with workers and organizers to actually to go out and flyer uh, the workplace. Uh, and then we had workers call in to the Labor Standards Commission and also to the Department of Public Health. Here in Quebec. Here in Quebec yeah. uh, to demand changes. Unfortunately, the minimum... Um, 
uh, is actually really below maybe what workers would feel safe. So we said we're still going to fight and push around. Uh, we had workers speak up and organize a press conference uh, where workers explained the horrible work conditions that they were facing, that they weren't being able to work two meters apart. Uh, that when cleaners were called in sick, there was no replacement. Uh, there was no extra washing stations. Uh, there was no sanitization between shifts of the equipment. Um, and no uh, gloves or masks. And through the pressure, we saw slowly beginning to change. So as of a week ago or two weeks ago, uh, Dollarama began providing uh, masks to all its workers and extra sanitization and d disinfection of the equipment. Uh, especially because these workplaces, these warehouses, are giant rooms with no ventilation uh, where hundreds of people are just passing each other uh, eight hours a day. Uh, and so many of the workers are still complaining that it doesn't go far enough. So that's one of the things we're beginning to work on is that to give a lot of these workers the right to stay home uh, and also to either declare it as a non-essential service or uh, to reduce the number of workers to make sure that it that it's safe. But ultimately, it goes down to other issues as well, where uh, if workers don't feel that they have a permanent job, uh, we know this is the case with two workers where uh, someone had tested positive, uh, but they had showed up to work because they were afraid they were going to lose their job if they just stayed at home. So that's kind of fear that workers are living in. Hmm. So th those are like the the major issues that we're we're fighting around uh, still to this to this moment with workers and improving the. The conditions also in the different stores itself. Okay. Um, I guess just for people to think about um, what it took for workers to speak up, I mean, in this context, you mentioned the press conference. I remember that happened about two weeks ago. It was through Zoom, mm. but the media here in Montreal and Quebec uh, covered this issue. Um, you, you work with people. You've also worked in one of these uh, spaces before. Um, can you just talk about how it was to sort of walk through that process of people deciding they wanted to speak up and, 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 and getting to that point of, of saying something? Well, I think what's interesting is that uh, it is true that like a lot of this, uh, when people see things and they see workers in this moment going out or uh, the walkout in the Amazon in, in, in Long Island or uh, different workers' protests that we're beginning to see is that a lot of it is spontaneous and I don't think um, there's a moment that's definitely heightening uh, workers will to, to go out to protest because it's their lives at stake but also a lot of this is from long-standing organizing that I think a lot of people people just see the moment right and so um, you know, we've been flyering uh, the Immigrant Workers Center. We've been flyering and working with workers there almost for 10 years now. Uh, you know, holding workshops, uh, facilitating their skills development, uh, fighting around individual cases and their rights, campaigns around precarious work. And so a lot of that is this slow buildup uh, to build those relationships and those trusts with workers uh that took a long time so um 
you know, one worker contacts another worker. And, and so all of that takes time. And then also in the process uh, during the pandemic, um, we began holding uh, virtual labor rights workshops and we held one physical one with Dollarama workers um, before, you know, it sort of got a bit more sensitive and illegal to actually hold hold meetings. So, uh, but that process took, uh, you know, five years and to build people's confidence and trust. So, I mean, that uh, to me is like definitely there's the moment where people now are really scared and they, they want to speak up and they're not afraid to speak up because they have something bigger at stake. But I think uh, to be able to reach those people who are even at that point, I, I, it took years to get to. And I think we're seeing that take place uh, in all kinds of different contexts. Yeah, I guess last point, that's really interesting because there is sort of a narrative that I'm seeing a lot within activist networks on the left that um, this is this moment where people rise up and we have to address the situation or, you know, activists are expressing how that how there's a need to address this sort of response to the pandemic. But I guess from the perspective of a community organizer, I mean, just if you could underline that sort of idea of the sort of long-term work that builds these capacities. Well, I mean, I think it's about building like institutions that could be rooted actually in these communities that are going to be affected by these crises, right? And I think that's fundamentally uh, the role because when you have these institutions and these organizations, you're actually able to uh, to catch those moments, right? When you, when we fly in as activists to sort of just say, oh, there's a moment we got to respond and we should respond, which is, you know, uh, a good sense. <coughs> but at the same time, what needs to happen is, or, or, or the point I think uh, that this moment shows is that that long-term strategy and that kind of long-term building of institutions that are grounded is really central to be able to how the left can actually navigate these moments. So, um, and really uh, be vehicles for people's frustrations, their grievances, and, and to be able to to be able to launch those kinds of campaigns. But without that kind of uh, long-term uh, institution, I think it's going to be really important afterwards, right? that there's going to be a huge battle afterwards. And I think in Quebec, in Canada, the Canadian context, it is true. Low-wage workers did get uh, a bump in their wages. So how do we keep defending it, right, against these large multinationals? Uh, are they going to respect certain health and safety protocols? Mm -hmm. uh, is there going to be a second wave? Uh, and we know this is affecting, like, uh, in Montreal, for example, uh now the 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 neighborhood with the largest uh infection rate is Montreal North which is a predominantly Haitian immigrant working class neighborhood and that directly correlates to people's working conditions right so that directly relates to the kind of the economic system and the injustice people are facing in their workplace and sort of the neglect right and i don't think those issues are going to go away so uh it's i think if we don't have the kind of organizations or institutions that can respond now, then I think we need to start kind of building the ones that can that can propel this stuff long term, 
uh, not just to respond to this crisis, but then the deeper issues. And because we know these these kind of, not just pandemics, but these crises happen again and again. And so our ability to respond isn't just about placing ideas out there, but about building institutions that can actually uh, uh, solidify and, and make those ideas a reality. Mm-hmm. So this uh, segment is for the Brick Media's... Um, this segment is for Brick Media's podcast, Brooklyn, USA. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to ask you from Montreal, uh, what do you want to say to people uh, who, are, who are listening in Brooklyn? Uh, stay safe uh, and, you know, in solidarity with, with, with everyone in, in, in Brooklyn and in New York who is uh, still deep in this and, uh, and that a lot of uh, inspiring uh, organizing and work is, is, is coming out of there and, uh, and being able to sort of also highlight, I think, um, what's not actually only taking place in the U.S. and sort of even the perspective, you know, talking about Dollarama or uh, what we're seeing now in Sweden or uh, in the U.K. is sort of um, the racialized aspect of of this virus. And unfortunately, uh, due to the actual grim nature of the reality in the U.S., uh, it's not just a U.S. uh, phenomenon, but I think because activists have been pushing... uh, uh, those politics have helped also shed a light, an important light, on on who's actually affected by this pandemic in other contexts uh, as well. That was uh, Mustafa Hanawi from the Immigrant Workers Center talking about the campaign that they've been working on to uh, demand more safe working conditions uh, within the context of Dollarama. Um, I wanted to say also that that interview was produced for collaboration with the Brooklyn USA podcast of Brick Media. Uh, That is a community media arts center in Brooklyn, New York, who will also be um, broadcasting this interview with uh, Mustafa. Now I wanted to share with you um, a sounds piece, a story that was sent to me from a friend in Tehran, in Iran, named Banud. Uh, who works on the project Thesimal. You can find them at thesimal.com. Banud sent this report on being an artist in Iran at this moment of pandemic. Hello, I'm Banud. I'm as known as uh, Thesimal. I'm an independent artist uh, from Tehran, Iran. Uh, I'm going to share a story about COVID-19. Uh, I was in a trip with my friends at Shomal, uh, north of Iran, and I heard COVID-19 is spreading from Qom, a small city in Iran. I was really afraid of this because I was wearing masks from two weeks ago, and I, it was several days that I quit using it. We were in a house completely isolated uh, from outside. We could just go out for shopping foods and we had to accept the risk uh, because otherwise we had nothing to eat, a huge stress. The border between cities were going to close and there were a lot of rumors. We had to stay in Shamal because we didn't really know what's going on. Uh, we stayed two weeks. Uh, it was 
mm, not good, not bad. Uh, a trip with the stress of your death or your family members. Uh, for me, it was really hard because I didn't know what's happening in my home. Uh, but in the other hand, we had a chance to go to a forest. We made a video art with my friend, uh, one of the talented one, Ami Hossein. Uh, it was about cows and it turned too harsh, maybe because of the stress. Uh, after two weeks, we, we returned to Tehran. It was a completely dead city and I've never seen Tehran like this because it's usually uh, a crowded city and that's all. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoy it. Thank you Benoud for sharing uh, this story from Iran uh, here on Free City Radio. So next I wanted to play a piece of music by a Montreal Ensemble that features members of the Community Vibe Collective. That's Dark Matter. So here we go. I am a descendant of Africans who were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as slaves. I spent my early childhood in a racist, segregated South. I later moved to the northern part of the country. country, country. Meditation 
that's a piece by Dark Matter from their EP, Neptune's Moons, uh, that was produced by Nick Schofield, and it was recorded live at La Salarosa. So uh, Dark Matter is an ensemble of um, African diasporic musicians here in Montreal. I wanted to share their music with you here on the podcast. Next, I wanted to share a discussion I had with a poet and community activist named Shanice Nicole, uh, who has been really uh, vocal and involved in community advocacy work here in Montreal over the past years, has also been a very active poet. Uh, We talked about what this moment means, this moment of pandemic means for activists, what this moment uh, of pandemic means for diaspora, Um, and just had a conversation, and I wanted to share that with you here on uh, the Free City Radio podcast. So, okay, cool. So, um, well, I I guess, first of all, like, I think, like, this moment has brought forward, like, a lot of discussions about, you know, community action, solidarity, you know, people trying Mm -hmm. to support each other. Um, And also, it's this strange moment where the government is playing a really important role in terms of determining, you know, people's livelihood, how this is going to go right. regarding health. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, I guess, first of all, as, as a community activist, like, w- what are some reflections that you've had about this moment in relation to the importance of people supporting each other, but also the sort of complicated relationship with, you know, the state and big institutions and, and, you know, acknowledging that they're important, but also being critical. Yeah. Any, any reflections in that area? Yeah. I mean, it's all, uh, it's like all, yeah, it's all like wrapped up in one and and messy and complicated and layered, Um, but all really important things to both like reflect on them and also like question and critique, you know, like you said, like what does it mean to, to critique the state, but also recognize the ways in which, like, we are supported, um, or some of us are able to, like, access certain resources, you know, um, that, that make it possible for us to support each other, and so it's, it's complicated, um, but I think witnessing the way that people have come together to support each other in direct, intangible ways has been really, uh, powerful and it's also been interesting to kind of witness all of this happening virtually as well um and that's also an interesting thing because we for many of us we we before this like you know we spent a lot of time together or like connected together in in the virtual space but then for many of us we had like that opportunity to kind of come back or reconnect together in person um yeah. So it's just like all these different dynamics at at once, and everyone is trying to figure it out at the same time, and so it's really hard. Um, so I'm I'm really trying to like tap into that compassion for self and for others, because um, it's a wild time, and I think it's like really easy to get caught up in everything and t- and to forget also kind of what's happening um, to us and to the world, to our communities, like around us, and it's. It's pretty massive, and I think it's also important that we don't um, kind of underestimate the the gravity of it. However, I also I also understand that like 
you know, for a lot of people who are in, like, pure survival mode right now because they don't have access to the resources that they need, um, it, it is in some ways a luxury to kind of sit back and reflect, right? And just sit back and be like, oh, wow, this is really intense, you know, if you're, if you're not, like, in the middle of that survival mode. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I have a lot, of, a lot of thoughts. I guess you're thinking about your family? Uh, yeah, I mean, always, and I get really grateful my family is doing well and everyone's healthy. Um, I have people kind of kind of everywhere, so both uh, here locally um, and kind of in Ontario as well, but then also lots of family in England uh, and then family in the Caribbean. So um, the people overall are doing well, so I feel really blessed. Um, and lucky, and my my partner's brother plays hockey in France, and so um, he was stuck there for a little bit, um, but he got back safely, and so we were really really happy to to receive him and to have him home. Right on, right on. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of like, I I feel like in some ways the there's this idea that you know the the government takes these actions and there's sort of this benevolence in Canada, you know, okay, well, they've taken action to um, support people who've lost their jobs or the healthcare system has fared relatively well compared to the United States um, because of the public elements of the healthcare system. But I I was wondering, like, um, I think I, I, at least I felt like that was sort of missing from this narrative was all the, work and activist work that has gone into pushing for the creation of employment insurance or of public health care. Um, right. And yeah. And then also like thinking about like, um, like that those things were not just given, you know, that, that, that there was a, that there's a community yeah. element that's sort of lost in that narrative. Totally. Always, always. I think that's like really important. And thank you for, for, like naming that because um again and especially right now because we are like in this kind of virtual space all of the information that we're being received is, is coming in a particular way um and i think about the media and, and the media's narrative around like the government and the role of government and so it's really easy to kind of get, get caught up in that idea that um that like yeah we are being like saved and all of these things are like kind of free gifts to the people, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And then again, like even within that, it's like not all the people, right? Like it's certain people. Um, and so even, and speaking to the, the piece around like community or grassroots activism that, that led to like whatever kind of changes that were made that like allowed like that wider, that group of like who the people are to, to widen, like that was made possible because of the activism that you're speaking to. Um, and so that the question of like, you know, who the government considers to be a person, like literally, or considers to be someone who's like worthy of support, um, is, is not everybody. And so like kind of seeing even the way in which more and more people have gotten access to whatever resources are being allocated, um, that has like, again, been made possible because of the people who've been like doing that pushing, um. And so I think it's it's important that like that is as you said not lost, um, yeah, because it's not it's not free and and most importantly, uh, not everyone is being supported. And I think if we 
if we continue to to push the narrative of like everything is good, Canada is great, everyone's being helped, this is how you do it, um, without like naming all of the different like gaps and the people who have fallen through those gaps, I think that's like it's uh, it's it's dangerous, you know, because a lot of people are being ignored and erased. Um, and so, like, how do we kind of talk about the complicatedness of like both of these things or all of these things being true? Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, I thought about like also like um, you mentioned the Caribbean. Of course, the Caribbean diaspora in Toronto it's huge, um, mm-hmm. and not only in Canada but also in the UK, um, which you mentioned. Right. I mean, in the last few years, there's been you know all that all that uh, attempt to revoke the rights of the Windrush generation, um, mm-hmm. and you know obviously. Um, medical workers with origins in the Caribbean or from the Caribbean have played such an important role in public health care within Canada and the UK. Um, right. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if there's anything you'd like to say on that. Um, I mean, nothing in, in particular. Like, I think like that history really resonates, uh, given that... Uh, my grandparents migrated uh, from the Caribbean to uh, to England, um, and yeah, so we're like really kind of connected to that like living history of what's happening right now. Again, that, that question of like who is considered to be a person or who is considered to be worthy um, is like an ongoing, unfortunately, kind of question that returns. Um, and also returns, like, no matter where you are, you know, so, like, this question, again, of, of borders comes up um, in that, like, you know, it doesn't matter where we are, like, these these, these same trends are happening, um, and people are being affected uh, in similar ways everywhere, so it, it shows, like, both how scary that is, but then also kind of, like, okay, what does it mean if we're all kind of connected in these particular ways? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it makes me kind of, yeah, think about, think about that. And then, and again, just a reminder of, like, I always think about, like, you know, it is, it's very rare that, that things are new, you know? So, like, true, none of this true. is new. And so, yeah, yeah. And so what does it mean to, to remember that? Um, both in the sense of, like, okay, um, if I can remember this, that, that means, like, it's been done, it's been done before, which means that there are answers here, there are, resources here, there are tools here, there's like blueprints here, you know, so there's like that, there's like that side of it, um, that I think can be like empowering and grounding in a way, but then there's the other side of it, which is like, holy shit, like, how are we here again, you know, or like, yeah. how has this not changed, or how are we still having the same conversation, or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so, again, like, it's, it's nuanced and complicated, you know, so I think we have to really like, um, yeah, have a lot of compassion as we try to unravel all of this and figure it out. Um, one thing that you've really like done uh, seriously in the last years was um, articulate your voice politically through the arts, through your activism. I see like a lot of people these days. Um, I, I think like this moment has brought forward like a lot of questions about 
um, you know, people um, expressing the urgency of this moment, people reflecting on what's going on. Some people are having more space to reflect. Others, of course, aren't, especially like factory workers who are still at it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm bringing this up because um, that process of like articulating your voice artistically, politically, um, I'm just wondering uh, if you have any thoughts about the importance of like figuring out that process and 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 I, I guess because a lot of I'm seeing like a lot of people sharing you know for example what politicians are saying or what celebrities are saying but I'm not as much hearing you know maybe what all these different people are thinking themselves or what they're going through um, so I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the importance of like that process of of you know, articulating um, artistically or politically, you know, your voice, and 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 I, I've, that's something that you you obviously have have been doing these last years. Mm. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's you know, I always say it's like always a good, it's always a good time to to speak your truth, um, and so I think it it's powerful to like witness people stepping into that or moving into that, like wherever it is that they're coming from, you know? Um, and I, yeah. And I also kind of, I reject the idea that sometimes there's like pushback to when people do decide to like speak up or to share as in like, you know, as in like, Oh, you're late to the party. But I think for me anyways, like I think we need more people, not less. Um, right on. And if this has, like, inspired someone to think about something differently or question something differently or, like, you know, see, like, in maybe, like, an inequity, like, really clearly, to me, that's, like, a good thing. Um, and so it's, it's great whenever, whenever people do decide to, like, speak up and to speak out. Um, and I'm always really, yeah, grateful and, like, honored to see that and, and also to see it in different ways. And so I think... Um, I'm thinking about, like, friends who have been uh, creating so much art and sharing mm -hmm. that with mm -hmm. the world. Um, so, again, like, challenging or reimagining what we think of as, like, political content or whatever. Um, and, of course, like, art is political, but, but, like, really just thinking about, like, the power of, like, sharing what we create as something that can be, like, transformative, you know, and can be can shift the can shift the way that we like live, you know. Um, and one of the really cool things I think about social media, um, and we're like intensely saturated with it right now uh, because of this kind of quarantine situation. But um, like we, like we as in whatever, like the broader we, we the people, like we're getting to create the media that we want to see and engage with and in. Um, and I think that's really cool and awesome that, that like that opportunity is becoming more and more accessible for people. Um, and social media has kind of like allowed that uh, or has given maybe, uh, has opened that door a little bit more widely. And so that's really cool that, um, that we can imagine like a different way, you know, and, and media is so important, like the media that we engage with. Um, and the stories that we hear and the stories that uh, that come from that media. Um, and so social media has, like, 
yes, created like different platforms. And I think that's been pretty incredible. And to see people like using that as a way to, to talk about, to share politics. Um, yeah. And right on. Yeah. Cool. That was a discussion I had with poet and activist Shanice Nicole. Um, so thank you, Shanice, for joining us here on the Free City Radio podcast. Next, I just wanted to mention a book that I've been reading. I felt it was really important. Um, I'm really in it right now, and it's a pretty serious title in terms of length. I think it's about four, 450 pages or so. Um, but it's very important. It's called Damning the Flood. Haiti, Aristide, and the Politics of Containment. It's by Peter Halward, and it's out of uh, Verso Books. I thought it was important for a number of reasons. Um, I thought it was important because it really illustrates a lot of important points of the implication of France, United States, and Canada in the coup against a democratically elected president in Haiti, Aristide, in 2004. Um, this is not um, a story that I think has been fully explored in the mainstream. Um, and Canada played a really important role in that event. Uh, I'll explore it more in future broadcasts, but I just wanted to highlight that book title I've been reading here. And on that front, I wanted to play a piece by a Haitian uh, hip-hop artist from here in Montreal named Vox Sambu. Um, this is a collaboration of Vox Sambu and Narsi. Um, it's called Article 14. Let's move on to Article 14. Uh, Article 14 says that everyone has the right to seek and enjoy asylum from persecution. Uh, Haitians, for example. Uh, right in the middle of the Vienna Conference, in fact, just as it opened, uh, 87 more Haitians were captured by Clinton's illegal blockade of the island and forcibly returned to their torture chamber. There was a terrorist uh, military regime at the time which was carrying out brutal murders and assassinations. Uh, this event was virtually unmentioned in the press, in the national press, unmentioned in the Boston Globe. It did make page 68, uh, was mentioned in a story on another topic. So that's uh, everyone having the right to uh, seek and enjoy asylum from persecution. Am I a subject to singe and covetous kings? Cups of wine, we've been drawn over puppets with strings. Swine merchants seeking divine nurtured mind urgency. Imperial, serial plated, Syrian mist out came a period. Hatred of fear of this place. Bearded man with a sneer on his face. And men were brutal Arabs. And the women were sent naked to harems. The mind indulged. The more the story ended, the core conditioning of Orientalist renditions, sword inventions. Giving us an entire new meaning to a British empire. Demeaning the Civic bent, gimmick trend, friend, this is an end, colonized, crusaders sing papal cheers in the ears of King Faisal the first, aching the surf, cried for what displacement was worth, in dollars, disgracing the birth of a nation, under guidance of a foreign leader's dirty fists, and all this started in 1936, it's the hurt we lift, off our backs for the burning gist, the western civilization's yearning wish, when I speak to a track, like horse bitters and reach for a rack, and course winners, peace with a divorce and a whole, cultural Y2K, before we were judge worthy of freedom by UK lineage and represented by Hussein.
assez, c'est assez, ma révente au serré. Les VD est terminé, faut que ça renfesse. Trop génocide, ça tourne ta coup son acide. Gade Timonio, pour yo ta coup c'est plastique. Moi j'ai sa critique, politique, sa conscience malhonnête. Assassin, c'est mouvement satanique. Coach Jean Dominique, Patrice Lumumba, esprit de pour être vivant. A Guevara, ta commande là. Combat pour la justice, jusqu'à ce que nous gagnions victoire, nous reconnaissons qu'il s'agisse. Pas vu une bonne panique, si ce manque est une compourique. Quand papa nous dit c'est pour une décap à nos existences, ou kidnapper toute forme de factory, chita dans le silence. Pensez ça fait sens, puis à nager dans la souffrance. Petit esclave, pas d'homme, des croyants, pas égal devant la loi. Sans représentant, y'a kidnappé dans le noir. It's time for revolution, this is our mission. Exécution n'est pas de façon, we get no protection. Trop jeune garçon, petit garçon, avec la raison, son système de pendaison. Détrine à poison, yo assez l'une tellement yo fait tout monde dos à dos. Pour intérêt yo, j'étais dans le bateau. L'en rive yo traité nous tant qu'on s'en dalle salaud. Men gué sans caco, yo joue n'avec yo. That was Article 14 by Vox Sambu and Narsi. Um, check out both of their work. Vox uh, performed for many years with Nomadic Massive, as did Narsi. Both are doing awesome uh, solo work these days. And um, I wanted to also mention, recently I watched a film called America. Uh, it's a really powerful uh, drama film. I, I'd seen it quite some time ago but I rewatched it recently and uh, it's just a powerful film about immigration identity oppression perseverance uh, it's really one of the best films I've seen in a while I, I cried I laughed um, I smiled I found it beautiful um, it's such a, a great film it's about a, a Palestinian woman and her son immigrating from the West Bank of Palestine under occupation to Chicago to live with their relatives and try to establish a new life in the Chicago suburbs. It's a really beautiful film. It's called America. So now on the show, I wanted to highlight a discussion I had with Ibrahim Marashi, who is an author and a professor. He contributes regularly to The Guardian and to Al Jazeera. I wanted to talk to him because he has been really following closely uh, the politics of conflict between the United States and Iran. I think his texts have been very fair, very grounded, 
and insightful. Um, so I wanted to talk to him about the ways in which the sanctions that are being held over Iran by the United States, but also by Canada, are affecting the fight against the pandemic in Iran, how they're affecting the public health care system. Um, I'm sharing this because there has been a campaign that I've been trying to support here in Canada through the Courage Coalition. That's couragecoalition.ca. Um, we have been working on a campaign called End Iran Sanctions Canada um, with that hashtag, End Iran Sanctions Canada. And this really is a campaign not to try to take a position vis-a-vis -vis the policies of the Iranian government, but to say that in a time of crisis, in a time of pandemic, um, sanctions that affect the public health care system in Iran are not acceptable. Because if a pandemic sustains itself in one part of the world, it affects all of the world. And of course, just on the basic human level, allowing these sanctions to continue, which block access financially for the Iranian public health care system for things like ventilators and scanners, it's just not acceptable. But I wanted to talk with Ibrahim because he's an expert on these issues, writes about them regularly. So here's our conversation. I'm on the line with Ibrahim Al-Marashi, who is a professor of contemporary history on the Middle East, um, who's joining us right now from California. Hey, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. How are you? Good, good, thanks. Um, so I I mean, to be honest with you, there has been some media coverage, I'm sure you've seen it, about the pandemic's effects on Iran. Uh, it was more uh, serious at the beginning of the global pandemic, um, especially when there was uh, some impact within the Iranian government. Um, but I wanted to particularly ask you about the ways that sanctions... Um, are affecting the fight against uh, the pandemic, not only in Iran, but how that how that touches or affects the the whole global um, uh, uh, addressing of the, of the pandemic. Well, the sanctions that were imposed on Iran, as well as from the global perspective, the global campaign against COVID-19 are both reflective of what I would argue are flawed Trump administration policies that focuses on maximizing American interests over global cooperation. Uh, the sanctions on Iran were opposed because the U.S. withdrew from a multilateral Iran nuclear deal. And when we see the tensions between the Trump administration and the WHO, you see that America's kind of reluctance to engage in international organizations has dire consequences for Middle East security and global health security. So, I mean, on just on a, a medical, social, and political level in regards to Iran, um, thank you for sharing that. I, I guess from from what I've seen in the media, there isn't really an articulation of the way that sanctions directly impact the struggle against COVID-19 in Iran. I mean, we can talk about, you know, sanctions, of course, affect the government's budget, but there are public hospitals in Iran, and I can imagine that this has an impact. So the effects of sanctions are multifold. Uh, so let's say if 
some European countries want to send either financial aid or medical equipment to Iran. Uh, they have to navigate the U.S. sanctions. That's what prevents uh, immediate provision of both supplies and monetary aid. Uh, any country, actually, that wants to come to Iran's aid or even uh, attempts of, let's say, the WHO, any of these efforts are going to be complicated because of the sanctions that are in place. So you have the international and the domestic, and the domestic you alluded to. Uh, the sanctions already have kind of crippled the Iranian economy. Of course, they're going to cripple Iran's medical infrastructure. But that was prior to the outbreak. Any attempts now to come to Iran's aid is hampered by the uh, current uh, existing American sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, yeah, just tangibly speaking, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, thank you for highlighting that. Um, if, if countries do want to donate medical equipment um, and, and different um, sort of facets of support in the context of pandemic, that's hindered from the sanctions. Correct. Yeah. I mean, even in theory, uh, other international institutions, such as if Iran were to want to apply for an IMF loan, that would also be uh, hindered by the uh, well, by the Trump administration's policy to Iran. Yeah. Um, so uh, Canada also has sanctions on Iran. Um, so you know, this is something that um, people within the Iranian diaspora have brought up in Canada, but also human rights activists. Um, so the U.S. sanctions have this echo effect in many parts of the world. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of countries like Canada or Germany or France or the United Kingdom, but particularly particularly Canada in this case, because I'm, I'm in Montreal and people here will be listening. Um, why is it important that the ca Canadian government... Um, uh, thinks critically about this position. I mean, it just seems at this point they've adopted the U.S. position. Uh, th that's correct. And even though, you know, sanctions might be imposed to crit uh, criticize Iran's uh, human rights uh, violations in the past, I, I think in times of emergency, uh, sanctions need to be lifted in order to send a message that even though we have political differences, COVID-19 is a problem that affects humanity in general. Sanctions, in this case from the Canadian side, uh, you know, send a political message. But at this time when the Iranian people are suffering, I, I think these sanctions need to be put aside. Canada should do that. It won't happen with the U.S. because of the nature of the Trump administration. But I think Canada can set an example to show that we're not going to follow this kind of obstinate American policy towards Iran. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so uh, at this time, I mean, uh, there is this global crisis, but at the same time, uh, there has been indications from the U.S. administration that they're taking advantage of the media focus on the pandemic to take diplomatic action that um, that hurts uh, not just the Iranian government but the national economy and the government um, in general. 
Um, I guess often people don't really understand that obviously within a government, you have many different layers. There's many bureaucrats. There's a lot of different opinions within a state. I mean, if we're talking about the United States, obviously, even at the high level of Dr. Fauci and Trump have a totally different position at times, right? So there's this like attempt to sort of present the Iranian state as this monolithic entity, right? So I'm just wondering if you could share any thoughts about that uh yes uh, the iranian state it's often a good way to imagine it as kind of two parallel systems of governance where you have one system that is dominated by the revolutionary guard so that you would have let's say an intelligence apparatus run by the revolutionary guard the elite military of uh, iran and then you have the let's say intelligence apparatus that is connected to the iranian government at the same time you have a relief effort for covid 19 that includes health infrastructure managed by the Revolutionary Guard and then the civilian side. And it's important to keep that in mind because, of course, with sanctions, you see, the Revolutionary Guard is considered now a terrorist organization by the United States. Okay, And this is one of the few sanctions existing on, an ex on a military organization. Yeah. So... Not only do you hurt the Revolutionary Guard's medical efforts, but then again, you just sideline or hurt the entire civilian medical infrastructure in Iran at the same time with those kind of blanket approaches. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great. That was a discussion I had with Ibrahim Marashi, who is a scholar and a writer. He contributes to The Guardian and to Al Jazeera English. I really respect his work and I wanted to talk with him in the context of international campaigning that's been taking place to pressure Western governments to uh, lessen the restrictions of these international sanctions on Iran and the Iranian government, which of course directly affects the public health care system uh, in, in, in Iran. So thank you, Ibrahim, for speaking with me. So I wanted to now go to a piece of music by the Anti-Pop Consortium. Man, something's, something's up here. This is, this is just, you know, not right. Now one 
one busted female. The spot was more flash than Korea emails. Ass swinging, flopping, ringing more than retail. In front of my eyes, a couple of rounds went by. This chick put on a disguise like Batman. Gave a lap dance. Pete was talking to this other female in black pants, spandex, topless, swinging tits like reels on Ampex. I heard her say something like she was ambidex. He wanted to take it to the next. Disappeared with two bottles of Bex. Then I looked out the window, saw two cats come out of Lex. Nodding to the bouncer, they pointed to the back where they flexed like fuck sex, waiting for a check. Yo, Pete, that's Jet. Must be out, feel a threat. Then I heard a shriek. The two cats from the Lex in the back were somehow deleted from the scene, but the scream was definitely a female, young, just out of her teens. The music came through a screech. Yo, where the fuck is Pete? Blood started sticking to my feet. Then I heard a strip of flap. I broke out like a bad rash. Back to the whip. Pete was hiding behind garbage and shit, talking about some cats at a full clip to me and that chick. But missed. We rolled low like fuck, yo. I don't know. Dropped him off by the bridge. Came back home to the lab. Rolled a bag and took a drag. Thinking, yo, who popped the stripper? Was my man blowing two L's and flipped on some Jack the Ripper? All those Siamese cats in the left. Ice like the Big Dipper. You paint the picture. Who popped the stripper? Was it my man blowing two L's and flipped on some Jack the Ripper? All those Siamese cats in the left. Ice like the Big Dipper. You paint the picture. That was a track by the Anti-Pop Consortium here on Free City Radio. Shout out to their work. Great band. I wanted to now play an interview I I recorded with uh, journalist, investigative reporter Arun Gupta, who writes for The Nation, The Intercept, many other publications. And Arun actually traveled to uh, the borderlands between Mexico and the United States to document what these immigration detention camps and dislocation camps are looking like at this moment of pandemic. Uh, I thought it was really important to speak with Arun. He's published recently an article in The Nation looking at this, and we had a chance to talk about it. I'm with Arun Gupta, who is a correspondent for The Nation magazine. Uh, Recently, Arun has written a piece um, called Refugees in the Time of COVID-19. There's been obviously a lot of attention on the ways that this pandemic has affected the United States. Uh, There's been some discussion about uh, the way that the pandemic has affected people who are detained, Uh, but there are also people who are on both sides of the borderline um, in Mexico, in the United States, and also people who have been detained in the southern Mexican border. Uh, I know that wasn't the focus of your piece, but just to mention, um, it's related to Trump's policy. Um, you you tell some stories in your piece, but first of all, just maybe to to start, can you just give us a picture of some of the um, some of the reasons you wanted to tell this story, and why it's important right now for particularly for activists to think about and and to focus on this. Yeah, and and not just for activists, anyone who is a human being. So. For the first time in U.S. history, American history, there are massive refugee camps along the U.S. border. These are in southern Mexico. There are seven border cities where there's over 60,000 refugees, asylum seekers who are trapped, who've been trying to get into the U.S. to exercise their legal right to asylum, and they have been illegally stopped by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. 
The context for this is World War II. As a result of World War II, there was, of course, the very famous um, uh, ship, I think it was called the St. Louis, USS St. Louis, that was filled with Jewish refugees in the late 1930s that tried to enter the U.S. The U.S. prevented them from entering. They went from country to country, and eventually they were forced back to Europe, where a lot of them ended up dying in the Nazi death camps. As a result of that, we get international treaties such as the Convention on Refugees, such as the Convention Against Torture, which are the U.S. Are, is signatories to, so they have the complete weight of U.S. law of the Constitution, right? Under the Constitution, if, if uh, treaties are ratified by um, the Congress, they, they carry the full weight of U.S. law. And the thinking was that we don't want to put populations at risk again. So if people are being persecuted, they should be led in the country to whatever country they're seeking asylum in, whoever signs these treaties, to pursue their claim. Because obviously you, you don't know whether their claim is legitimate or not. And if it is legitimate, if you return them, to um, another country, you could be putting them at grave, if not deadly risk. So this is a broader context. So the U.S. immigration system, as you know, is often talked about, is broken, right? You know, but this is a deliberate breaking, you know, where the persecution, the detention, the kind of uh, torture end of it is fully funded, um, but the asylum end is not. So there are not enough um, judges to hear the cases. And so people have been trying to get into the uh, people come into the country, they say, I have, you know, a fear of uh, death, I'm being persecuted for such and such reasons, and the U.S. is supposed to let them in. And that's generally what goes on. And it takes years for these cases to be adjudicated. Now, the right um, and, and also the Democratic Party, to a lesser degree, has whipped up a lot of anti-immigrant hatred. It's very important to remember that the Clintons in the 1990s were very much in the forefront of the anti-immigrant hatred. And, and the, all the deportations that have been going on for, 20, for more than 20 years are a result of Bill Clinton's bill in the 1990s um, that uh, uh, targeted uh, immigrants, um, uh, that it was very much an anti-immigrant bill. Of course, you know, it's called the Immigrant Responsibility Act or some BS like that. So in any case, 99, so people are led to the country to pursue their asylum claims. The right whips up hysteria. Trump does, oh, they disappear. That's just complete BS. Over 99% of asylum seekers um, uh, show up uh, to their hearings because you don't leave your home, right, for just on a whim. This is a thing. I've interviewed refugees from around the world who have come to the U.S. from, you know, uh, Central America, from South America, from Middle East, uh, from Asia, the Caribbean, and the story is always the same. And they, and they say the same thing. It's just like, who wants to leave their home? No one wants to leave their home, but they're leaving under uh, a fear of death, often caused directly by U.S. Uh, policies. And so all they're asking is, you know, we want to exercise our legal right to be led in the country. 
Now, Trump has shut this all down. First, they introduced what's called a metering policy, where at the border, they would only let a couple of people in a day, even though there were dozens or even hundreds who were trying to, and it was just a way to gum up the works. Then, um, so that began in 2018 the metering policy. In 2019, they instituted a new policy, this Orwellian name uh, uh, Migrant Protection Protocol, which a lot of people call the Migrant Persecution Protocol, which is that once um, you apply for asylum, you're returned to Mexico. This is completely illegal under U.S. law. Um, numerous courts have found against it, but in our the way that constitutional jurisprudence works, it takes years to adjudicate these cases. And now we have, you know, a far right ideological Supreme Court that will basically rubber stamp whatever atrocity um, Trump wants to pass. So, you know, we, we have a, a Muslim ban that was passed, right? You can't get any more unconstitutional than that, equal protection under the law, but, but they still pass it. You know, we now also have uh, the Supreme Court approved of Trump's, um, you know, cutting off um, uh, any sort of government programs, uh, you know, even things like Medicare or, um, uh, or Medicaid uh, to uh, legal immigrants, again. They're, they're, they're being treated unequally under, under the law. So this, so as a result of this, you have these camps, seven camps, 60,000 refugees, the number fluctuate, fluctuates a lot. It's been growing, but recently it started to drop because of the coronavirus pandemic. And I went down to one of the refugee camps in Matamoros, uh, Mexico, which is in uh, basically the northeast uh, tip of Mexico, right across from Brownsville, Texas. It's literally right across a footbridge. Um, and so I spent, uh, my partner Michelle Paulson and I, we spent the better part of the week there um, talking to refugees, interviewing aid workers, and getting a sense of life in the camp and listening to people's stories. So you, you spoke to a number of people, um... One striking story is the sidewalk school, um, uh, and you speak to uh, the founder, Felicia um, Samponaro, and she speaks about her work to um, support uh, children who are within families who are claiming asylum. I, I, I feel like, of course, you know, there is like a lot of media coverage that tries to maybe give special interest stories and doesn't focus on the systemic issues, which you have been talking about. But your story here in The Nation that came out quite recently uh, called Refugees in the Time of COVID-19 both talks about the systemic issues, but you highlight some of the ways that people are are fighting to retain dignity and also to support the human rights of, of kids, you know, who are in this situation. I mean, in this case, the right to education. Could you tell us a bit about that, that case? Yeah. So, so Felicia, um, is, uh, she comes from Houston, Texas and she came down to the border. She saw what was happening in 2019. And, um, we met all these Americans who the vast majority of them have since left very reluctantly, um, because of the pandemic. Um, but she was one of those, she's still down there. She came down there 
because she says, once you see what's going on, you can't leave. She basically gave up uh, her entire life and moved down to the border region to start up a school for the children. It's called the sidewalk school because the classes are held on the sidewalk under um, uh, the basically the pavilion of the um, Institute uh, for National Migration. This is the Mexican uh, um, state, uh, the governmental body um, that handles uh, uh, issues related to migration. Mm -hmm. And so what they're just trying to do is they're trying to give uh, kids basic education. A lot of children had to leave school. A lot of children have never had the opportunity to go to school. It's, you know, to give them a sense of normalcy, um, to give them some place, you know, where they can learn, where they can be kids. Um, we watch the classes. Um, the classes are taught uh, almost all by asylum seekers themselves. Um, there are about a, a lot of them are Cubans. There are about a thousand Cubans uh, who live in Matamoros. You know, when we're talking about the refugee camp uh, in the cities, that's just kind of in, you know. So it's it's in you know places like Nuevo Laredo, Reynoso, um, Ciudad Juarez, basically across every major um, U.S. city border crossing. There's one of these massive refugee camps. But there's also a lot of people who live in the cities um, themselves, refugees, that maybe they were able to get jobs, uh, maybe they have uh, family income. So like a lot of Cubans, um, uh, they all live in apartments. Now, they may be like seven of them sure. in a one-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. And so she would hire um, uh, refugees, uh, asylum seekers, to teach uh, the kids. And this just grew and grew. She was paying for it out of her own pocket for a long time. You know, they would um, they were providing kids with educational materials. They would provide them with uh, food every day, you know, including things like fresh fruit, which become, you know, just a real um, uh, rarity down there. You know, if you've ever been in like a soup kitchen or a pantry, you know, what they tend to feed people is what they can get a hold of, which is a lot of, you know, starchy, fatty foods um they're just filling up people and that has you know that's a whole other issue but they're not so, serving uh, avocado on toast and no not that and so they've been able to continue with the school because they got a donation um as the school developed uh, more and more stories started to be written and then eventually, and the cost kept increasing, you know, uh, they are teaching something like 100 plus kids and it was like $1,500 a week. But donors um, have taken up, uh, you know, paying for the entire cost um, of the school. And then they got a donation of over 100 tablets as well as uh, personal protection equipment for kids. You know, they've been able to hand them a mask and, and gloves. And so they're continuing with the school. It's now yeah. uh, remote, uh, though. But and it was also one of um, we believe at least four different schools that were operating in the camp itself. And part of the complexities of what's going on in the camp is so when you have thousands of people, you actually like people would talk about like different parts of the camp, you know, and they would name it, you know, like there's this part, there's that part. And um, parents uh, generally were inclined to keep children very close to them. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. For one, 
Now, Matamoros is part of the reason Matamoros has gotten a lot of coverage is it's the as bad as the situation is, it's the best, um, it's the safest of the border cities. And and that's all relative, of course, right? And what we were told, now, this stuff would, would be very difficult to, to verify. It, it would take, like, months of living down there and making contacts. But what we were told, um, unverified from numerous sources, was essentially one of the big criminal cartels, the Gulf Cartel, the Gulf Cartel, that they controlled the city, they controlled um, the refugee camp there. And so for them, the refugees were a real source of profit. Um, you know, like just like um, the U.S. Uh, various uh, criminal uh, syndicates, mafias, they eventually get into legitimate businesses. Um, I uh, once took a class with an economist who is also a Wall Street trader, left-leaning, um, who claimed that one of the biggest U.S. banks was actually started by a crime family um, as a front. So in Matamoros, a lot of the legitimate businesses are apparently owned by cartels. So this is manufacturing, this is retailing, they apparently own a lot of real estate, and so they don't want to do anything to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And so they keep it like relatively safe. And so what we heard was that, well, in a lot of the border cities, there is a lot of extreme violence. And that's more where there are turf wars between various cartels. In Matamoros, what we would hear is there's violence more coming from um, soldiers, from police, uh, from government workers. Um, or even just people within the camp themselves. Um, you know, we heard stories of young girls being sexually assaulted. Um, so parents would, uh, you know, there was like constant fear of kidnapping. Um, we don't know how true that is, but what we do know is that on the journey that uh, uh, the migrants make to get to the border. It is extremely dangerous. We talked to one family um, of seven, at, at least uh, the adults, who had been kidnapped um, uh, when they got to northern Mexico. They got off the bus, and within minutes, uh, they were accosted by two groups of men in a pickup truck um, and held for 23 days. And um, we talked to two Cuban men who had also been kidnapped in uh, northern Mexico. And the and these gangs uh, forced them to call their relatives in the U.S. and demand, you know, thousands of dollars uh, for their release. And obviously the folks we talked to are the ones who survived. Um, okay. According to us, since the um, drug war really began in about 2005. This is under pressure from the Bush administration, the internal drug war in Mexico. The estimated number of deaths caused by it are 300,000, and it's estimated that 60,000 migrants um, have been killed. So, um, you know, when we interview people, you know, it's with the realization that these are the ones who have obviously survived the journey um, to uh, get this uh, far. So, as a result, 
you know, parents are very, there's a lot of stress and anxiety. You can imagine like this just, a, or you can't, we can imagine actually, you know, like I think right now a lot of people are dealing obviously virtually everyone with varying levels of stress, anxiety, even this feeling of terror. Now imagine, you know, you're living in these camps where you fled deadly violence. So like one of the families we talked to from Honduras, uh, Yamali, the mother, and R Rolando, her husband, at least seven of their family members on uh, both sides of the family were uh, killed by uh, uh, gangs in um, uh, in Honduras. And these are the big cartels. W one of them is, um, uh, you know, MS-13, uh, um, the infamous uh, Salvadoran uh, gang, and the other, it's in the article, um, it's, it's um, Calle 18, um, so 18, the 18th Street Gang. And these are... You know, these are these huge gangs whose networks are all throughout the Americas and in the U.S. And they basically had to flee for their lives. And so and they had to, like, pay smugglers to cross every single border. And so, you know, they've now been living in this camp for over a year and it's incredibly stressful. And now they're living with this threat of the pandemic. So I wanted to ask uh, actually specifically about. Honduras. And yes, thank you for that context. Um, because I mean, often there isn't a lot of discussion about the ways that the policy of the United States or also Canada is connected to displacement, right? And Honduras obviously is a very important example. And, and we have seen again and again in the last few years, a lot of people who are coming to the border I mean, it's not only people from Honduras, but there is an increase in migration from Honduras. And that obviously is related to uh, the U.S. and also Canadian involvement in the coup in Honduras. I mean, maybe we, we don't have time to get into the entire context, but if you don't mind mentioning a bit of the context... Well, sure. I mean, first of all, you know, this this is America's backyard, the Monroe Doctrine. You know, I think during the, especially the period of like, you know, really brutal U.S. imperialism, gunboat diplomacy, there was something like 7,000 different incidents where the U.S. Uh, violated other countries' sovereignty throughout um, the Americas. Um, and then you fast forward to mo modern times where you have Ronald Reagan who comes in in the 1980s, the Central American Wars, you know, um, the war against the um, popular government in uh, what was then a very popular revolutionary government, um, the Sandinistas, um, the support for the absolutely brutal and genocidal uh, civil wars in Guatemala and uh, El Salvador. Um, Guatemala was officially labeled a genocide, something like uh, 200,000 uh, uh, people killed by this brutal right-wing government, which came to power as a result of the 1954 U.S. coup. This is the origins of MS-13, you know, where you have all these Salvadoran refugees who come to the U.S., um, some, and they live in these displaced communities, you know, they're basically criminalized. And, you know, this is something I've, I've interviewed, like, lots of refugees. When you are criminalized, what that, what that does to you, of course, you're going to be like, okay, if I'm already seen as a criminal, 
why shouldn't I like, you know, maybe like, you know, smuggle in like some marijuana um, because I need to get ahead. I'm constantly being, you know, um, uh, taken advantage of. And so this is the origin of the gangs in the U.S. Then under Clinton, they start deporting them en masse uh, to El Salvador, uh, people who had been convicted of crimes. And this spreads uh, the transnational, uh, this creates the transnational networks. And this is also, I think, a parallel to what's going on. Like, you know, Trump has closed down the borders, claiming that, Sorry, I had something. Um, Trump has closed down the borders, claiming that, you know, immigration is a threat, which is complete BS. It's not immigrants who are bringing in COVID-19. In fact, the U.S. is deliberately spreading. It's, it's just like the smallpox blankets all over again. The U.S. is deporting all these immigrants to countries like Guatemala, Haiti, El Salvador, completely devastated, virtually no public health infrastructure. They're deporting um, uh, deport people who are infected with COVID-19. So this is a, a form of biological warfare, a biological terrorism um, that is currently going uh, on. But, you know, with res let me just, with respect to Honduras, yeah, it, it was this coup in 2009, completely backed uh, by Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration that really destabilizes the country, that sends these waves of migrants um, to the U.S. And th this is a direct result of, of U.S. policy that has created um, these huge uh, waves of migrants um, going back decades and decades. Thank you so much for um, sharing this, Arun. Um, and I, I really appreciate in your text how you tell the stories of people directly affected and also the community efforts that are taking place to support them. I think just for people to understand, um, I guess the last point I would ask you about is given that you've, I mean, you mentioned that this particular um you know, I mean, in, in this one case, you know, it's not the worst situation, but still like just the literal concept of these refugee camps at the border. Um, I mean, you talked about, you know, ba basically U.S. policy has amounted to remain in Mexico is the is the is the the goal uh, migrant protection protocols. But I mean, uh, you know, you've you've talked about how that's the migrant prosecution protocols the activists are saying that aclu has been involved in this i mean just i guess maybe to finish can you like given you've been there just on a emotional level on like from your you know you've been doing this work for so long to uh uncover these sort of stories how was it like when you saw these camps like can you describe them like so um you know they tend to, they're not as orderly as what you will see a, a lot of refugee camps uh, look, look like. You know, it's, it's constantly in flux. Um, so when we were there, they, so when they were literally right across from the International Gateway Bridge, like when you come down, the checkpoint is right there and boom, feet from it, the, the tents begin right in the, the big plaza. Um, leading uh, uh, to uh, the border where all the police, National Guard, cameras, uh, checkpoints are, just hundreds and hundreds of, of tents. Then 
there's a levy and that's where the Rio Grande is and that's where the bulk of the refugees were. Now they've, they've basically cajoled, pushed all the refugees out of the plaza um, on, onto the levy um, okay. area. So, so they're kind of out of sight. And even in Brownville, like people were not aware that, you know, just literally a stone's throw from them was this uh, massive uh, uh, refugee uh, camp. It, it's, you know, the ability to just kind of keep these things out of sight and out of mind is um, pretty remarkable. And so people live in tent, uh, tents. They have these pallets that they put the tents on and then tarps. And the Mexican government, like, was kind of reluctantly coming in. So th this these camps also exist. There's this whole other story of how they exist in this kind of, like, uh, gray space. Because neither the Mexican government or the U.S. government wants to label them refugees. Because the instant they do, it triggers all these obligations under yeah. these treaties that they've signed. The U then the UNHCR can come in, and then, then they're mandated to provide services, such as schooling, such as health care. So, you know, like Felicia, uh, uh, Felicia said, you know, it's just like, you know, of course we want to do this and we want to help, but basically we shouldn't be doing this, right? You know, um, uh, that this uh, these things should be the responsibility of the state. If you're going to create this situation, you need to be taking care of this people. Yeah, yeah. Instead, it gets dumped on these uh, uh, kind of like civil society networks. So, you know, we were told UNHCR was kind of sniffing around the edges, but they couldn't come in. We saw Doctors Without Borders, you know, Medicine Sans Frontieres, uh, personnel, they would walk around, but they weren't really in there as as well. Um, and, you know, like, uh, there's this, uh, what is it, Jose Andreas, his, like, One World Kitchen or something like that. They'd come in and built this dining hall. They, they got a lot of acclaim. After Hurricane Maria, they fed, um, served, like, 3.5 million meals in Puerto, Puerto Rico. So it's all these 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 nonprofit groups that are trying to fill um, the space uh, that the um, the state will not yeah. uh, fill, and so you know there are kind of these limited services. There there is a clinic. I interviewed them extensively about COVID nineteen. What you know they were treating people for. Um, you know the conditions there. Um, uh, the One World, you know, I'm not sure I'm getting the name right, but the, the Jose Andreas organization, they had built a dining hall. Um, the Mexican government had built like showers and a laundry uh, facility. But, you know, people were still like they were living in stress. They were living in fear. There was constant like concerns about gangs coming in, you know, because it's not that far, you know, um, to come from Honduras or El Salvador and that people who were fleeing violence could uh, potentially be yeah. killed. There was often rumors that people were killed or kidnapped. Again, we could never pin anything down uh, for sure. Um, you know, but people were trying to make the best of it. You know, it's it's both a, tra a story of tragedy and resiliency and hope. You know, people, you know, one of the things that really struck me, especially because I used to um, 
uh, I'm a, used to cook professionally at I'm a chef is all the makeshift kitchens and, you know, that uh, people would build. And some of them just had these beautiful handmade stoves um, uh, made out of, uh, you know, clay that they had just fashioned, just absolutely gorgeous. But what struck me was in names that it was like, you know, Restaurante El Paso or Vista El Norte. And everyone, you know, Vista to the North, everyone was focused on the United States, on getting in, that this is a promised land. I mean, that's what Yamali and Rolando told us, that America is a promised land, um, you know, and that it's a nation of laws. And, you know, from their perspective, it really is, um, given where they're coming from. And all they want is this opportunity to come in the U.S. and just to work hard. And that's a real tragedy, you know, because of the racism of the state, the racism in the country, you know, we can't recognize them for human beings who just want to be given a chance and could, who could add so much to this country. And their youngest daughter, who is an honor student, you know, she, she's like, I want to be a lawyer, you know, because I want to help people. And, you know, they could contribute so much to this country. Um, and, it, you know, the U.S. can use you know, the lifeblood of the U.S. is immigrants. It would be in a pretty uh, bad state if it wasn't uh, for immigrants um, right now who do everything from pick the food to cook the food to take care of um, people in nursing homes. They're the medical doctors. They're the researchers. You know, at every step of the way, it's uh, immigrants who are on the front lines of, of this uh, pandemic. And, you know, so it's important that you know, we fight for the basic humanity and there's really, you know, neither political party is recognizing uh, the basic uh, humanity. The Republicans want to deny it. The Democrats just want to avoid it, you know. But, you know, it's, it's important that we continue to fight for these people with every breath and ounce of effort we have. Thank you, Arun, um, for speaking with us. Um, we can check out your article on the Nation website. Uh, the text is called Refugees in the Time of COVID-19. Uh, and you worked on this piece with Michelle Fawcett. Thanks, Arun. Thank you, Stefan. That was a discussion I had with Arun Gupta, who is an investigative reporter and journalist uh, who recently published an important piece in the Nation about the conditions of migrants who are forced to live in basically refugee camps at the border of Mexico and the United States in the context of pandemic and the dangers that they face medically, socially, and politically. Thank you, Arun, for joining Free City Radio. So that just about does it today uh, for the Free City Radio uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for being with us and for tuning in. Uh, it's been a pleasure to share some discussions and some music with you um, over this time and to um, continue to uh, engage uh, different voices uh, in this podcast format. Um, uh, I just want to sh say that if you have any suggestions or ideas or feedback about the show, you can write me an email at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Also, I'm at Spirodon, uh, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N, on Twitter, 
and uh, you can find me various places. Um, so this is the sixth edition of the Free City Radio podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. Really appreciate the feedback and support. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. And um, to end the show today, I wanted to share a piece of music I worked on with um, an Egyptian-Canadian artist, Sam Shadabi. This is a piece uh, we worked on that's called Flying Street. So thanks again to CKUT Radio here in Montreal for hosting this uh, show on the FM dials and also to all my family and friends for supporting this podcast initiative. Um, Do uh, spread the word. Okay, take it easy. Thank you.
Thank you.